Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, as we continue in this third service to examine your word at this portion of our worship, there is a rhythm in worship. People expressing themselves to you, you expressing yourself to them. Not one to the exclusion of the other. Balanced. Balanced in the gathered setting, such as the Lord's Day. Balanced in the scattered settings, such as what takes place during the course of the week. All under your Lordship. Leading people to Christ. Leading those people to maturity in Christ. So that they, in turn, are leading people to Christ. Who are leading people to mature in Christ. Who lead people to Christ. And the multiplication of disciples takes place. Full-spectrum discipleship. Our vision. Based in your word, not in our ideas. It's your word we turn to now. We're not interested in what a pastor's opinions are. We are simply interested in what the God of the universe says. So, Father, with Bibles open... Minds open, hearts open, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was standing at the desk and I was checking myself in for some outpatient surgery. And as I was viewing what was taking place in the lobby, I noticed that there were various people with name badges on, and they were making their way throughout the lobby, greeting people, putting them at ease, and guiding them to their prospective rooms. And I stood there, and I observed what was unfolding from my eyes, and I thought to myself, Hospitality in a hospital. I walked down the hallways of a hospice. I'm greeted by a host who leads me to a particular room. Hospitality being provided by a host in a hospice for a person who was once in a hospital. And we start connecting the dots. Because hospital and hospice, host, you see, and hospitality have something in common. They come from the same word, which means literally a love for strangers. A love for strangers. Now, this was a critical, important concept for the early church. As early expansion began to take place, people gathered not in this type of house, but in houses of various church members, house churches. And what we find when you examine very carefully the writings of John, particularly in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, is that there was a, a, a route, a highway, if you will, 
of the communication not only of information, but also a demonstration the mobility of people in that time period, because it was known in that time as the Pax Romana, Latin for the peace that comes from Rome. After conquests by the Roman Empire would take place, an elaborate road system would be established, which would create added mobility for populations to move from point A to point B to point C. Along the way, itinerant teachers would make their way. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Not only in the fullness of time, prophetically in the sense of a child to be born in Bethlehem, but taking into account the military and the political movements of that time period, Jesus was born at such a time so that the gospel might be able to be transmitted across the highway system that had been established by the Romans. Fast forward into the 1950s, and after World War II, the United States has a transportation strategy unfolding, a highway movement developing under the Eisenhower administration, where once again, because battles have been ended, conquest established, you have not only now the highway system that's seen there in the interstate, but you can fast forward again from interstate to internet and see the transmission mobily of what has been taking place increasingly globally in the way in which the gospel is being transmitted. All of this is percolating in my mind, you see, as I'm watching hospitality being administrated in a hospital setting, a hospice setting, for patients, their points of need. What I want to do with you is we continue now to explore the Apostle John's writings, who was discipled by Jesus Christ, the great physician, is to draw out two significant themes that I see unfolding in these verses with regard to biblical hospitality. Because 3 John deals primarily with the application of doctrine into the hearts of people's lives. You see, you're going to see names mentioned here, names that were not mentioned in 2 John. Names in 3 John, like Gaius in verse 1. Names such as Diotrephes in verse 9. A name like Demetrius in verse 12. There are people on John's heart, and there should be people on your heart as well this morning. In both the gathered and the scattered, I want to draw out for us two significant themes about the idea of biblical hospitality. And the first flows out of verses 5 and 6. We'll pen it like this. The number one, providing biblical hospitality to traveling Christian workers includes receiving them graciously and then sending them worthily. Not once, not twice, but now three times the word beloved is used here in the third John. In verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius. As we noted last week, it does not begin with the Apostle John to the unknown follower of Jesus. No, the Apostle John 
one of the great leaders in all history. He's more interested in others than he is in self-identification. And so he simply refers to himself as the elder. And he lifts up those around him, in this case, the beloved Gaius. And what fascinates me is that he refers to him, as we note it, as the beloved Gaius, not merely beloved Gaius. Beloved Gaius, there is a reputation now that is, that is moving beyond the region in which he lives. He is the beloved Gaius. And in verse 2, this man whose house was also something of a hospital, we are told in verse 2, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health bodily as it goes well with your soul internally, you see. Because you never knew with the construction of the Roman system of roads when somebody, a fellow believer, might show up at your door. And I'm not talking when I say 2 o'clock, I mean 2 in the afternoon. It could very well be 2 in the morning. Because as the historians tell us, the inns in that time period were of ill repute, quote unquote, by one of the writers. But Christians were known for housing people, taking them in. And what's interesting about housing is that you tended to have medical supplies on hand, body and soul, just like we see not only in closed settings such as the hospital, but out in the open settings like the Good Samaritan approaching that Jewish man who has been brutalized and providing medication, and then bringing him where? To his home, you see, his home. Which would shock the Jewish readership to ponder the significance of a Samaritan offering hospitality in open space, and even more in closed space, such as the house. Middle Eastern hospitality. And so now, Gaius, not once, not twice, three times, beloved, And furthermore, beloved carries with it, in that particular word, agape, he is one who is beloved, you see. He loves sacrificially. Now, build off of this. Where are we going? Continue on. In verse 5, it says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts, not some of them. For these brothers, strangers as they are. Now, notice it says here, it's a faithful thing you do. Where it says it's a faithful thing you do, what he is now demonstrating is being faithful in a faithless culture. He is ministering. And what is fascinating about the Roman Empire at that time is that there was a high level of tolerance, low level of truth. They put a premium on tolerance and to such a degree that they had a pantheon of gods in the Roman system. Not one. They were highly inclusive and would add gods as they would go as they would incorporate more people into the Roman Empire. But Gaius is an atheistic Christian in their eyes. Now there's irony for us. But you see, an atheist was an individual in that time that refused to worship 
the Roman gods. He put his faith and trust in the exclusive second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He would have been viewed as an atheist in the Roman cultural religiosity of that time period. Where they had tolerance for all except the sense of intolerance towards exclusivity. The one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Does this sound vaguely familiar with the culture that we are in today? I had one person say to me, I'm tolerant of everyone except those who are intolerant. And I asked them, what do you do with the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me? How do you understand that? And the person walked away. Now, in a faithless culture, he is doing a faithful thing. And it's getting noticed. You might not see the immediate results of doing faithful things in a faithless culture. But the results are still to come. In a remote district of Wales, a biographer tells us, a baby boy lay dangerously ill. The widowed mother walked five miles in the night through the rain and the storm to get to her physician. The doctor, that early morning hour, looked out at the weather, but nonetheless put on his coat and made his way. Years and years later, after this child, Lloyd George, became Prime Minister of Great Britain, the doctor said, Quote, I never dreamed that in saving the life of that child on the farm hearth, I was saving the life of the greatest political figure of this day and age. Unquote. Sometimes you won't see immediate results when doing faithful things. But when you are doing faithful things in a faithless culture that embraces, nonetheless, the virtue of tolerance, then you are setting yourself up to talk about truth in a culture of tolerance in a way that is biblical. So, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in not some. He's not being selective, is he? In all your efforts. The Apostle John is on to Gaius. What interests me at this point is that the word efforts here carries with it the idea of invested energy being put out in the way in which one works. In other words, his faithfulness is a directional sign to the one in whom he's placed his faith. Jesus Christ, who died for his sins. So when you and I are faithful in the small things, we are directional signs toward the one who is the big thing. And when we are faithful in what is done privately, we are proclaiming eventually the one who has impacted this world publicly, Jesus Christ. And so now, Never underestimate the small things where faithfulness in the small details, faithfulness in the small 
relationships of life can have impact down the road. You're investing in your efforts, says is he, all your efforts. But then he adds, for these brothers, strangers as they are, now, there's risk whenever you're investing like this in the realm of hospitality. Why, if you look very carefully at what was happening in Greece, Greece, in Romans chapter 16, here's a woman welcoming Paul into her home. Lydia is her name. In verse 17 in Greece, here's a man welcoming Paul into his home. Jason was his name. And there was a risk in providing hospitality in that time period to those that held to exclusive truth. Because you will find in Acts 17 verse 6 in that city of Thessalonica, it's a hip city in modern day Greece today, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before and city authorities shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. That's a hospitality word has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. There will be a risk when you love strangers for Jesus' sake. Professor Eastman, in his volume, Men of Power, tells of the great scientist Louis Pasteur, who was a Christian, who often conducted his experiments at the risk of his own life. When someone commented on the courage such a course required, the biographer tells us of the response. The famous scientist's simple reply was, quote, but what about duty? Now, the house, the home, 24-7, the people are on duty because whether it be the interstate or the internet, you see what is happening here is the transference and the transmittance of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ that need to be taken into account. And so, in verse 2, there's the connection of body and soul, because a believer at that time period would never know when a fellow believer at 2 in the morning would appear at the doorstep needing care, shepherding, housing, and medical provision, body and soul. And so now, Gaius, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, and then he adds something incredibly significant at this point. Strangers, as they are. There are three powerful verses on this subject. Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Strangers. 
For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So we provide hospitality in the church gathered in this house on a Sunday morning. So you meet strangers in the hallways. But then in the highways of life you meet strangers in the scattered sense of ministry. Because the rhythms of this congregation are to be gathered on a Lord's Day, to be scattered on the other days of the week, so that 24-7, in and out, combining lordship of body and soul, we are creating a sense of full-spectrum discipleship, leading people to Christ, who are leading people to Christ, who in turn lead people to Christ. And there's loyalty here to God's teachings. But then Peter, he was John's buddy, you know. Peter wants us to understand that in 1 Peter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. So I allowed myself to begin to ponder the significance of what all this means. This whole matter of providing hospitality. And my mind went back to something Emily Barnes wrote because she's written brilliantly on the subject of hospitality. We rob ourselves of so much joy when we limit our hospitality to what can be arranged in advance, she writes. We enrich our lives when we get in the habit of spur of the moment hospitality. Planning for spontaneous hospitality is one of the most important ways of giving the gift of friendship. Friendships are cultivated through spending time together. And perhaps a secular friend becomes eventually a biblical follower of Jesus. Strangers, you see, as they are. And my mind goes back, doesn't it, with you, to Genesis chapter 18, where there's, there's Abraham, and he's just minding his, minding his own business, but the Lord appeared to him. He's got a way of interrupting our lives, doesn't he? Intentional interruption. By the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. Why well, bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves? And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. And a remarkable story. You can read about it in Genesis 18. A remarkable story unfolds. You're back now to 3 John. And you're pondering here that there's a connection between the two words juxtaposed, brothers and strangers. It means then we can't cocoon. We are gathered to be scattered, and we are scattered then to be gathered. And so we've got to help our children and our grandchildren to understand that we are not isolated from the culture, but we are at the same time to be invested in truth within this culture. 
And so we are not reclusive, but we are responsive to the needs of the Allah. To these brothers, strangers as they are. And then I got some words for you guys. Check out verse 6. Who testified to your love before the church. In other words, it was kind of like a Thanksgiving service here, you see, and people get up and they share with one another. And evidently some people have been getting up and sharing about Gaius and the impact that Gaius has had. Do you notice that there's nothing said about Gaius' house? This is not about one's house. This is about one's heart. We don't know the size of the house, but we know something about the size of Gaius' We don't know the appearance of Gaius' house, but we are getting a sense of the appearance of Gaius' heart, you see. So I began from Genesis to Revelation to note tension points. In the gathered to be scattered, in the scattered to be gathered, where we are in this house this morning, but in our houses during the course of the week, all which are the Lord's houses. And I ponder the woman Lydia in Acts 16 and the man Jason in Acts 17. And they're providing a sense of love for the stranger. And I see tension points. There's the expected company and the unexpected company. Prepared and unprepared. As the one in that upper room became host wash the disciples' feet, and then would say, and I go to what? Prepare a place for you, hospitality awaiting, you see. Jesus, the great physician, hospitality, outdoors, says people are hurting and need to be touched by the tips of the finger of the great physician, and indoors as well as he sat at the table of sinners and tax collectors, as the Bible would put it. Proactive, yet reactive. But we're to be not self-centered, but Christ-centered. It's not the size of the house, it's the size of the heart. But what fascinates me here is that there's a distinction between hospitality and entertainment in the Bible because entertainment is a cultural activity. Hospitality is a biblical responsibility. As she is watching this man coming up and down the streets, Elisha, and she's burdened for him, isn't she? She's watching, and it's one day, though, when in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, Elisha went on to Shunem, this wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. And so whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let's make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, 
He can go in there. Gaius, they're talking about you. You're not seeking attention, but you've got their attention. Because you are told here in verse 6, who testified to your love before the church. And Rick Shannon, pastor of Second Baptist in Greenville, Kentucky, recalled a time evangelistically in his efforts in Venezuela that upon arriving at the airport, a group met him with these words, quote, we not only welcome you with our hands, but with our heart in our hands, quote, unquote. And then there's Max Dupree. Great book, Leadership Jazz, likens leadership to the way in which jazz musicians relate in a synchronized form. I love the way jazz works itself out that way, don't you? And then he pens Esther, my wife, and I have a granddaughter named Zoe, the Greek word for life. And she was born prematurely, weighed one pound, seven ounces, so small that my wedding ring could slide up her arm to her shoulder. So small. He describes the needs of this child. Five to ten percent chance of living three days. To complicate matters, Zoe's biological father had jumped ship months before. Realizing this, a wise and caring nurse in the hospital named Ruth gave me instructions. For the next several months, at least, you're to be the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital and provide hospitality for Zoe. And when you come, I want you to rub her body and her legs and her arms with the tip of your finger. And while you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over how much you love her because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. And on a Sunday morning, we get the voice. And Friday night, we provide the touch as we connect the gathered and the scattered. And we bring hospitality in this culture that needs to be hospitalized. And what we need to do is to be able to bring truth and love, not love without truth and not truth without love, but to combine what he said in verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Bump into some strangers in the hallways this morning. Going to bump into some strangers in the hallways at work this week who testified to your love before the church, you do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And the word worthy and the word worship come from the same root word, which means then what you are doing worthily, you are doing worshipfully, receiving them graciously and then sending them worthily because you have been worshiping God Worthily, you see, gathered to be scattered and scattered to be regathered. But now once you've connected this in verses 5 and 6, then you move onward because there's a second significant hospitality theme unfolding in verses 7 and verse 8. 
That's second of all, providing biblical hospitality to traveling Christian workers includes refreshing them holistically and when needed, supporting them appropriately. Receiving, refreshing. Receiving them graciously, refreshing them holistically. Sending them worthily, supporting them appropriately. See how all this fits together in these verses? As he has moved from the doctrinal of first and second John to the relational of third John, he's connecting his dots of life, you know. And then you pick it up in verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. They've gone out. But the second member of the Trinity went out, didn't he? He went out and he came into Bethlehem to die on Calvary for our sins. They went out. But then Jesus himself would say to the twelve minus one, but furthermore to the apostle John who would be drinking this in and ultimately penning these thoughts in John chapter 20 verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And now the next generation of full spectrum discipleship unfolds for they have gone out for the sake of the gospel. There is a sending aspect. There is an intake and there is an outtake. Input and output. The gathered and the scattered. The rhythms of congregational life. And when a congregation is biblically balanced like this, watch out. You've got one kind of powerful congregation on your hands. Watch out. This is one powerful congregation. For they've gone out. For what? Their sake? No. For the sake of the name. And I lean back in my home office chair and I drink in from YouTube what a beautiful name from Hillsong United. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord Most High. Your hidden glory and creation now revealed in you, our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus, you see. As Brooke Fraser is, she's well known. Adds voice to the name. And we add voice to the name in the gathered. And then we make the touch happen in the scattered. And that name given to Joseph to name that baby. He'll save his people from their sins is what the name Jesus means. Matthew one twenty one. That name that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-10. A name which is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That name, which five times in the Johannian writings is an expression of believe on his name, such as, here's the Apostle John once again, connecting the dots for you of the gospel to the epistles of John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God and you drink it in. And you ponder the significance of that name. 
And then you think about that name that was attached to that cross, that name that Pilate had placed there, King of the Jews. And you tie it to what the Apostle John does, not with that first coming, but you connect them to the second coming, where in Revelation chapter 19, you and I are informed in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And you connect that back to John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But you don't stop there, do you? No, you don't. Because there you have it in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you connect the robes that were divvied up among the soldiers at the cross. And now you consider this robe with this name, King of Kings, Lord, Lords. And you compare that description to the description on that cross where the religionists and the secularists combine to mock him. But God has the last word. They've gone out. They've gone out, you see, for the sake of the name And then adds this thought, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. You can turn to the believers. And let unbelievers ponder the way believers look out over one another, you see. But then in verse 8, we ought to support people like these. And you draw a line from support back to verse 2 because the word support was a medical term used to support somebody who physically had been facing a challenge. Whether it's a sling or whatever, you've got to be able to support that limb. Which is what we do with our life groups, which we are having a great time talking about tonight. There's support that needs to be provided here. Hospitality, you see. But now the pivotal moment, the ultimate moment of an example of hospitality unfolds. And it took the physician Luke to be able to spell it out for us. Because in Luke chapter 2, you and I are told that there was this point in Bethlehem, you see, where Joseph and Mary arrived on the scene, and she's wrapped in him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because because there's no place for them in the inn. But you connect the lack of hospitality at the birth of Christ with the full expression of hospitality At the death of Christ, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And though Mary lacked hospitality at the time of Christ's birth, Jesus provides full hospitality at the time of his death. And from that hour, the disciple took her 
to his own home. And the Apostle John's got credibility to be talking about this with Gaius because he's done it firsthand. Full spectrum discipleship. He's incorporated hospitality into his discipling ministry. This is where what Russell Kirk would describe as the little platoons of life, where the houses are extensions of the hearts, and the heart is revealed through the house, and this is the Lord's house where we gather to be scattered, and so we hear the voice, but then we make the touch. And we do the body so under the lordship of Jesus Christ and pour all these things together because what a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus who looks down upon his mother who found she would not be admitted into an inn to give birth to Jesus but will now be admitted into John's home because he knows John's heart. And now John has got an opportunity to express the idea of how hospitality relates to discipleship to the next spiritual generation of believers. Therefore, we need to support people like this so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And you connect now that word truth that is found there in verse 8 back to that phrase who testified to your love that's found there in verse 6. And now once again, you've done the combination effect of truth and love like he did in verse 1 whom I love in truth and then you ponder Herman Austri who is known for positioning himself in the hallways of his congregation's church facility getting to know people but then there's Herman Austri who does something similar but he, his, his barn was under had 29 inches of water barn floor some of Rising Creek. Here's this man reaching out and touching even those he didn't know. But now he looks at the barn and wonders, how am I going to do this? The Bruno Nebraska far farmer, AP tells us, invited a few friends to a barn raising. Needed to move his entire 17,000-pound bond to a new foundation more than 143 feet away. His son, Mike, devised a latticework of steel tubing and nailed, bolted, welded it on the inside and the outside of the bond. Hundreds of handles were attached. So his family and a few friends gathered together, and then they looked up and looked around. 344 people were making their way down the street toward the farm, making their way to the barn. Walked the barn up a slight incline, each supporting less than 50 pounds. In just three minutes, the barn was on its new foundation. And the news reporters approached him when they heard about the story. And they asked him how he made such a wide range of friends. And he said, well, friends, I don't even know who half of those people were. 
just strangers to me. Strangers. But when we grasp the significance of how the word hospital and hospice and host fit together, and we look at the needs of this culture that needs that sense of the great physician's touch, hospitality stands at the forefront. Maybe you're a Lydia, an Acts 16 woman. Maybe you're a Jason, Acts 17 man. But when we see the connection between the house, the church scattered, and this house where the church is gathered, and where hospitality is being administered day in, day out on the full-spectrum discipleship, watch out. This is a high-impact congregation extending itself in this region beyond for the glory of God, all in the name of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful name that is. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we thank you now for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that Jesus, who died on the cross, is preparing a place for us. We take these truths, we relate them to life to make a difference in this region beyond for your glory. And for you and for you alone deserve the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.